Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as my pretty bride likes me to say, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on, if you're not driving down the highway in your automobile, by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, of course, we have the best chat room on the planet. It's uh, always very exciting and stimulating, and today's subject matter is going to be particularly stimulating, so I think the conversation in the chat room is going to be very hot and ready do come join us that is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat that's right we've got a great guest today in today's spotlight however i wish to discuss our dependence on government the very nature of our lives depends on various governmental agencies operating with our best interests in mind it is therefore disconcerting to say the least when we learn that a significant appointment to some agency overseeing our food water and drugs has been given to a favored friend who has been or is still affiliated with a commercial company that the agency is supposed to oversee. This is the proverbial fox guarding the hen house, and it happens with every administration. For example, what do you think when a former Monsanto executive is appointed to an agency that may well have the power to make decisions on matters that Monsanto has spent hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying about who then are we to trust is this good old boy form of corruption acceptable a very interesting chart available on the internet shows the number of people monsanto has on their payroll people who are also members of congress and serve in important governmental roles including deputy director of the fda if you go to geek that's g-e-k-e dot u-s you will not only find this graphic, but also many others, such as the same sort of interface between our government, big tobacco, or big oil. A concern shared by many regarding GMOs includes the uncontrolled spread of GMO seeds and vegetation. Of course, there are many who insist this is both an unreasonable and an unwarranted objection. But is it? Following on the heels of the GM wheat contamination incident in Oregon, GM-contaminated alfalfa has now been found to be in the state of Washington. Agricultural officials in Washington state are testing samples of alfalfa after a farmer reported his hay was rejected for export because it tested positive for a genetically modified trait that was not supposed to be in his crop. Genetically engineered food is now a part of our mainstream diets. It has been estimated that Americans unknowingly eat their weight each year in GMOs. And the fact is, no long-term health study has ever been conducted to demonstrate the safety of GMO consumption. If you were planning on eating your body weight of anything in a year or feeding that much food to your family, wouldn't you first want to know if long-term studies and monitoring had shown it to be safe? What do you think of this headline? Human genes engineered into experimental GMO rice being grown in Kansas. Now, my initial reaction when I saw this was, oh, come on, that can't be true. The facts differ. Unless the rice you buy is certified organic or comes specifically from a farm that tests its rice crops for genetically modified traits, you could well be eating rice tainted with actual human genes. Did you know that Syngenta, a biotech giant, has been charged criminally with hiding the fact that their own research showed that cows died from eating its genetically modified corn? The charges follow a long struggle for justice by a German farmer whose dairy cattle suffered mysterious illnesses and deaths after eating what's known as BT-176. 
They were grown on his farm as part of authorized field tests during 1997 to 2002. By 2000, his cows were fed exclusively on BT-176, and soon illnesses started to emerge. He was paid 40,000 euros by Syngenta as partial compensation for five dead cows, decreased milk yields, and vet costs. During a civil lawsuit brought against the company by the farmer, however, Syngenta refused to admit that its GM corn was the cause, claiming no knowledge of harm. The case was dismissed and the farmer remained thousands of euros in debt. But in 2009, the farmer learned of a feeding study allegedly commissioned by Syngenta in 1996 that resulted in four cows dying in two days. Now, he and another farmer turned activist have brought Syngenta to the criminal courts to face charges of withholding knowledge of the U.S. trial. Today's spotlight is all about drawing attention to the secretive nature of much of what goes unreported to the masses dealing with GMOs, and of course the fact that many of the people who have say in the matter are those who already have an invested financial interest. Surely a program with such far-reaching consequences as this should be more transparent. In my book, Gotcha, I have written a lot about the many ways our government fails to protect us while we continue to trust that they are doing what we expect as opposed to what we inspect. I know today's guest has much to say on this subject because he did his own inspection. But first, what are your thoughts, Ravinder? Oh, I think this is a huge subject. You know, you talk about the fox guarding the hen house. You know, I feel that way about the entire government <laughs> taking care of us. I mean, eh, never mind. That's kind of just my thoughts. Um, when it comes to um, GMOs and the fact that we don't have say in so many of these things, that stuff just makes me angry. It's not only a case of if something has been proven safe or not. It's about our free choice. So... That is just really frustrating. When it comes to the rice, I am a total rice snob, so I only get organic rice from California, which is fortunate because I consume vast amounts of that stuff. Um, but the whole thing really is a double-edged sword. Um, we like convenience. We like things to be cheap. You know, the public at large demands things to be more and more affordable, um, and that just opens the door to some of these practices where, you know, big companies are just trying to get as much profit as they can. It's all so, complicated. So you, you think GMOs are about profitability, is that what you're saying? It's definitely a part of it. I mean, they're trying to take over everything. They want their patents, and if you've got GMO stuff growing in your field, then they'll sue you for it. And how ridiculous is that? It blows in, you know. Do you know anything about biology? Okay, good point. <laughs> all right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show featured Professor James Lowen, and we discussed his book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. Jeremy wrote, I so love your shows. They are so informative. Provocative Enlightenment is a great name. Professor Lowen's approach to history is how it all should be. Thank you for such a great show. Richard remarked, I absolutely love the sociological perspective of history. Susie wrote, why do they still teach that Columbus discovered America if he really didn't? It's so hard to know what to believe and not believe anymore. So discouraging. Amen to that, Susie. Martha wrote, I have known for a long time that our history books are revised and revised again, not with the truth, but with the stories they want us to swallow. How sad. Okay, moving on. Kimberly wrote, thank you, Dr. Taylor and your bride. I credit both with many wonderful, inspiring things I have learned. You are both great teachers. Well, thank you, Kimberly. I like that. How about you, Rivendell? Yes, thank you. That is. Barney wrote, I just wanted to write a quick note and say that you are the first writer I have seen to use the word confabulator in your book, What If. I love the word, and I find it to be fascinating. Thanks for all that you do. Well, What If is one of my favorite books, Barney, but it challenges many who dare read it. Samantha wrote, I must tell you that your Intertalk CDs really work. My son's grades have gone from D's to A's, and the only thing different is he listens regularly to his Intertalk Accelerated Learning CD. Thank you so very much. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook 
And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Altered Genes, Twisted Truth, How the Venture to Genetically Engineer Our Food Has Subverted Science, Corrupted Government, and Systematically Deceived the Public, with the author and attorney, Stephen M. Drucker. Now I'm going to tell you right now, this is a book that you have to read. And you know, I, I, I sometimes tell you, oh, this is a great read. This is a book that if you don't read, you're taking responsibility for something I guarantee you, you don't want to take responsibility for not knowing. Okay, let me tell you a little about today's guest. Stephen M. Drucker is a public interest attorney who founded the Alliance for Biointegrity, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting technologies that foster human and environmental health and addressing problems of those that do not. As executive director of the Alliance, he organized a lawsuit against the U.S. Food and Drug Administration that forced it to divulge its files on genetically engineered foods. This revealed that politically appointed administrators had covered up the extensive warnings of their own scientists about the unusual risks of these foods, lied about the facts, and then ushered these novel products onto the market in violation, complete violation, of explicit mandates of federal food safety law. Mr. Drucker earned his B.A. in philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley, with high honors that included a special award for outstanding accomplishment and received his Juris Doctor from the same institution and was elected to both the Law Review and the Legal Honor Society. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Stephen Drucker. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be a guest on your show today. Well, thank you, sir. I very much look forward to this show. I, I read your book, uh, and, and, you know, it's not an easy read. It, it's a it's a pretty thorough approach, but I, I really mean what I said. It, if, you know, there is so much material out there that wants to marginalize anyone who would oppose GMOs today, to treat them as though they're unscientific or they're just, you know, they are stupid farm kids that it... You know, not to know the truth about what's going on here is just a shame. You you are an attorney. You work in a law firm, and your law firm represented major corporations, corporations like Monsanto. And obviously, your your closest associates would be attorneys that, that worked in the same general area. How did they respond to you taking on the FDA well, actually, uh, I was no longer with uh, a large law firm when I uh, when I founded the Alliance for Biointegrity and initiated this lawsuit against the FDA. So, uh, had I been, uh, I might not have had the freedom to do it. But uh, I had long left the field of corporate law by then, and uh, was dedicated to public interest law, which is really what I went to law school to be able to do anyway. I had in my mind when I entered law school that I wanted to be able to ultimately focus on public interest law. Now, from reading your book, I got the opinion or the idea that uh, the firm you were with when you first started the investigation was very supportive of you, though. Uh, There wasn't a private law firm involved in this lawsuit there was no, right. an orga- another nonprofit organization, the International Center for Technology Assessment in Washington, D.C., which, when they learned of uh, my project, wanted to be involved and, and uh, became the attorneys of record because the suit was ultimately brought in federal district court in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, they're based there. Uh, they're members of the D.C. Bar. Uh, they, have ex- they had extensive experience doing lawsuits against federal administrative agencies, and I really didn't have that kind of experience. So um, I organized the suit, and I got an unprecedented group of plaintiffs together, and then I eventually worked with the attorneys at the ICTA as a lawyer on the uh, suit as well. But uh, I did not possess all the expertise at that time to do the suit myself. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, you know... Your book, you basically spell it out in, in the, 
subtitle to the cover. Uh, genetically engineer our food has subverted science, corrupted government, systematically deceived the public, and so forth. How do you respond when you make such... I mean, how, how do those around you... Well, let me say it differently. There, you, there are many critics that have attacked you personally and attacked your book, like Dr. Terry Simpson. How do you respond to these folks? Well, you know, I always respond with facts, but most of the people who've made that kind of attack are somewhat impervious to the facts, or they wouldn't have said what they've said about my book. For instance, one of the things that that uh, that Terry Simpson has said about it is that one of the great flaws in the book is that I don't... Uh, I don't really take any account of uh, what the proponents of genetically engineered food say, what the people who disagree with me say. Well, either he didn't read the book he purports to be reviewing, or he's purposely misrepresenting it, because if he had read the book, as he claims to have done, by the way, he rushed that that long, fairly long review out. It came out just a short time after the book was available as a Kindle. It hadn't even come out in print version yet, which does raise the suspicion that he actually didn't read the whole book. But in any event, uh, it's clear that he misrepresented in several respects what's in it. I mean, there are, I, I go through the major books written in defense of genetically engineered food and point out their shortcomings. Um, in one chapter, I go through all of the f- first four major uh, reports on, genetic, on GMOs issued by the National Academy of Science. And I spend many pages uh, debunking the the main one that's held up as the gold standard for risk assessment, showing that these foods are safe and showing that it ignores key evidence. It also has several. Uh, it's based on illogic. I mean, arguments that in any of the in a any of the philosophy courses I took at Berkeley, if any of the students had submitted papers using that kind of shoddy logic, they would have been lucky to get a D minus. So, and here's the nation's premier scientific organization. And then to have uh, a, a proponent for GMOs like Dr. Simpson saying that my book doesn't pay any attention to uh, arguments from the other side, that's malarkey. <laughs> Not only did I pay attention to them, I confronted them directly and systematically refuted them, something that he failed to do with my book. You won't find any good specific uh, refutations because he can't do it. Uh, You know, I've challenged Monsanto and the proponents to refute my book, Fair and Square, and to begin by submitting a list showing every assertion of fact that I make that is actually wrong, and with documentation as to why it's not, why it's a false assertion. They haven't done that because they can't. Of course not. And that's exactly my take. All right. You heard today's spotlight. How important do you think proper long-term studies are before we ingest our body weight in GMOs? Well, it's not what I think. It's what federal law requires. Uh, Since 1958, there's been a very strong law on the books protecting the public from the addition of novel new substances to our food supply that have not been demonstrated safe. And the FDA has admitted that that law, it's actually the Food Additive Amendment to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the purview of that law does apply to genetically engineered foods. They've just claimed that these foods can be on the market without any uh, the requirement of any testing at all, <laughs> not even short-term. This is important. The FDA, despite all of their pretensions to the contrary in public, does not require one smidgen of testing on the, on the part of any manufacturer of a genetically engineered food. The FDA basically says you don't even have to give us a prior notice that you're going to market a GMO. That's how loose it is in this country, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. This federal statute and the FDA's own regulations require that none of these genetically engineered foods, now the requirement, I should say, is not specific to these foods. It's generic to any foods containing new additives that do not have a history of safe use prior to 1958, that they have to be 
uh, demonstrated safe through technical evidence, and the standard is shown that there's a reasonable certainty they're not harmful. And the FDA claims, well, they're generally recognized as safe, and therefore they don't need to be tested. Well, that's malarkey in several respects. First, the FDA's own files demonstrated that it knew that none of these foods met the technical requirements for generally recognized as safe. In fact, it knew that they weren't recognized as safe among its own experts. The overwhelming consensus among the FDA's own scientists who were studying the issue was that genetic engineering is very different than conventional breeding, that it entails a unique set of risks, that none of its products should be presumed safe, and that each of them should be demonstrated safe through solid testing prior to being marketed. Now, that's what the law requires anyway. So the FDA scientists were telling their superiors, guess what? What the law requires is also what is required from the standpoint of sound science. What did the FDA superiors do? They covered up all of the extensive warnings that their own scientists had sent to them in, in several different memos, and they lied about it. They stated they weren't aware of any information showing that foods derived through genetic engineering differ in any uniform or meaningful way from other foods. That's just a blatant falsehood. And then they allowed all of these foods on the market without, as I mentioned, without the requirement of even one iota of testing. And then they claimed that they didn't need to require testing because these foods meet the qualifications of generally recognized as safe, which they clearly don't. They never have, and as we speak, they do not fulfill these criteria. In fact, there was a letter in the file from the FDA's own power technology coordinator to a Canadian health official admitting that there was not a consensus about safety within the scientific community at large. So the agency knew that the overwhelming consensus of its own scientists was that these foods are different and entail different risks, and they knew that there was not a consensus in the general scientific community either, and yet they claimed that there is an overwhelming consensus, and as I speak, that is the sole purported based legal basis for the marketing of genetically engineered foods in the United States. The FDA's, the FDA's ongoing fraudulent claim that every one of these foods is generally recognized as safe. You know, and, and, and of course, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, my my background uh, is in criminalistics, um, vocationally anyway. So, you know, I, I look at this, I hear what you're saying. I say, okay, what is the motive? What's the grand plan? Well, first, in this case, we don't need to prove motive. In a no, trial, I know. you need to prove mo- you need to show motive if you've got only got circumstantial evidence. We have right. solid I, evidence I, that the I don't mean the from that standpoint. Yeah, but I don't. it's clear what the motive is, uh, Eldon, because the the FDA has admitted in writing that it has an agenda to foster biotechnology, and we've known that ever since 1986, and actually earlier, but certainly in 1986, the federal executive branches formal. Uh, the, the, uh, agenda to foster and promote the U.S. biotechnology industry was given formal expression in what is in a document called the Joint Coordinated Framework for the Regulation of Biotechnology that was issued by the Reagan White House. And it it makes it very clear that the agencies are supposed to, as much as possible, promote the development of the biotechnology industry. It was very clear that the Reagan administration uh, and the Council for Competitiveness, uh, they were pushing this, and they wanted to roll back regulation as much as possible to get these products on the market quickly and to minimize any regulation. And they've been very successful in that in the United States. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> the extent of the minimization has actually been illegal. Uh, it's not just a case that there haven't been new laws passed and new regulations passed. Existing law and existing regulations have been violated. And that's, that's really a travesty, and very few people understand that, because the FDA continues to misrepresent the facts, and most people have been taken in. 
You know, we've got a hard break coming up here, but when we come back, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm going to ask why on earth would we fast track something like this that could be so dangerous? I mean, there has to be, you know, my, you, you heard the setup piece. Is it all about finance? Uh, is it just about power? All of the above. All of the above. All right. Well, we're speaking with Stephen. Many, many unsavory motives that are driving this. All right. Well, we'll get into that. We're speaking with Mr. Stephen Drucker about his life and book, Altered Genes, Twisted Truth. Go get your copy right now. To learn more about today's guest and his work, visit his website at biointegrity.org. Okay, we have a video for you today featuring Jane Goodall endorsing Mr. Drucker's work. So join Ravinder in the chat room. If you're listening on the dial, remember you can check the chat room out when you're next in front of your computer by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Mr. Stephen Drucker about his life and book, Altered Genes, Twisted Truth. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a bit of a hobby of mine, and it's a brand new field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Indeed, music has been shown to change the way we think. So, we just played If I Had a Hammer, sung by Pete Seeger. So please tell us, Stephen, why is this one important to you, and how does it instruct us about who you are? (laughs) Uh, Well, I didn't. I have uh, liked that song since, uh, you know, I was in probably junior high school. And to me, uh, it just expresses so many hopeful things and also a power about expression of uh, the hammer of justice, the bell of freedom, and yet the song about the love. So you've got strength, and I think it, I think it actually exemplifies Pete Seeger quite well, and, uh, but it, it does exemplify many of the ideals that I hold and 
what I've been trying to do, which is uh, get greater justice and uh, greater freedom and also greater harmony in the world, not only love among human beings, but enabling humans to have greater love for you know our home, all of the uh, other species that inhabit this planet with us and have much greater appreciation for the uh, the beauty of our Earth and how it works together as a wonderful system and uh, how we can be the uh, best inhabitants of this world, the best uh, cognizant uh, rational inhabitants, although we're probably not the only rational inhabitants anyway, but the, the ones who are the most self-reflective. And, uh, I absolutely... Anyway, we have a big role to play, we human beings, and uh, we are not doing the best job that we can do. Amen. I absolutely love it when there's coherence between a person's life and their chosen piece of music. We often get, you know, somebody that comes on the show. I mean, one of my favorites is a person comes on the show that wants to tell us everything is love and there's no such thing as evil in the world and the bad guys, well, they just made a plan on the other side to come down here and be bad. So, you know, there really isn't such a thing as evil. And then they they choose a song that's all about evil, you know. Uh, they done me wrong. He did, you know, stole my wife. The train ran over my dog kind of thing. Back to what we were talking about, sir. Uh, you're an attorney. You you have sued the FDA successfully. You won your case. You just laid out for us in the first half hour the fact that GMOs are not safe and that the scientists in the FDA know they're not safe, and that the FDA is breaking the law, and yet we're all consuming this. I mean, what are we supposed to do about that? I mean, how do, how do you hold them accountable, or is that possible? Well, it's it's been difficult, and actually I I uh, have to make a, a bit of a correction there. You said that, uh, that we won the lawsuit, and we meaning I and the Center for technology assessment and the other plaintiffs, of whom there were many. Uh, but actually, we did win in, in a big way by forcing the FDA to release its files, which has demonstrated quite solidly that it has been misrepresenting the facts and willfully breaking the law. But unfortunately, the judge uh, seemed to be very timid about being the judge that would essentially have to yank these foods off the market. And the judge uh, essentially said, Yes, you've demonstrated that as the time you filed the lawsuit in May of 1998, there is a significant conflict among scientific experts about the safety of these foods, which basically translated into legal terms means they weren't generally recognized as safe then, and they were illegally on the market as of that date. But she she said the main issue is not actually whether they're generally recognized as safe now, it's whether the FDA administrators had some rational basis to presume that they were in May of 1992. And she narrowed it down to that, and even then had to ignore uh, quite a bit of evidence that was in the files that we kept bringing to her attention. So it's one of the most astoundingly bad decisions I've ever read, and I've read a lot of bad ones, and it's astounding because she's a very intelligent judge. But this has to be uh, probably the worst decision she or any judge on the federal bench will, at least the Washington <laughs> D.C. bench, would be making in a long time. And any lawyer who reads it will see, if comparing it to the evidence, and my, there's a whole chapter in my book going through that, that it is an, a very amazingly uh, off-base and strange opinion. But she got away with it, and... Uh, uh, that's why these foods are still on the market, and the FDA is still basically sending representatives to uh, foment uh, to uh, spread false statements to Congress. They just the head of the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition just last October testified before a committee of the uh, the Agricultural Committee of the U.S. Senate and just put out untruths, I mean falsehoods, and she got away with it. Uh, how do we hold hold them accountable? If enough people learn the facts, or just a few key people. My book demonstrates that if President Obama actually read the book, <laughs> and he would be shocked. He's a smart lawyer, or if just his wife would read it first, then she'd make him read it. They're both very smart lawyers. I know they're ethical people, 
They've been pushing, his administration's been pushing genetically engineered foods, just like all of its successors have, but because he's been hoodwinked. He's not a molecular biologist. He, he has every right to believe the many scientists who've been telling him that these foods are safe and they've been proven safe, and, and yet uh, if he learned the facts and understood that far from being supported by solid science, this venture actually has been going against science, as the subtitle of my book says. It's been subverting science. I'm all in favor of science. If science had actually been, been followed assiduously, we wouldn't have genetically engineered foods on the market. Certainly we wouldn't have them on uh, with the shoddy testing that's been undertaken. It would be a whole different ballgame if science had been upheld, if the law had been upheld. And it won't take much to hold them accountable. It would take a few key people learning the facts. And I'm hopeful that a few key people will actually read my book and learn the facts and realize the extent to which they and many other good people of goodwill and high intelligence have been hoodwinked over these years. There can be a rapid turnaround. We don't need new laws. We don't need new regulations. We just need, here in the U.S., the laws and the regulations are already on the books to be enforced. And if that were to happen, there would be this whole venture would collapse. You, you, you can understand, perhaps, the timidity a judge might have when you realize that to recall all GMO foods, I mean, that would, that's such a monumental undertaking per se. It, it, it seems to me it would have to be phased in. I mean, it isn't just... You know, the produce that we go to the, the grocery store and find on the produce shelves, it's, it's the meat in the meat market. It's, you know, it's the entire food chain today. How would you see that unfolding were uh, maybe even somebody listening to this radio show, uh, uh, like the governor of the state of Washington, were to read your book, get involved, do something about this? Uh, how would you see that unfolding? What, what would be the steps to make that happen? Well, I, I'm not sure of every step, but it could unfold more quickly than most people think. I, one of the reviewers of my book, uh, and there were many, many experts, molecular biologists, some of whom even have pr- produced genetically engineered crops, um, to make sure it was scientifically accurate, uh, and they praised it strongly. In fact, I just want to mention, so people don't think it's just me saying my book is important, my book is uh, uh you know, is accurate. I believe you might have mentioned that the eminent scientist Jane Goodall, one of the most beloved scientists in the world, wrote the foreword in which she states it's without doubt one of the most important books of the last 50 years. Another scientist who was on the advisory team and wrote a very strong endorsement for the book is a professor at the prestigious Salk Institute for Biological Studies. Uh, He's a professor, laboratory director, he stated the book is incisive, insightful, and truly outstanding, and he also noted it is scientifically solid. Um, one of the uh, scholars, experts on the review team, is a professor of agricultural and applied economics at the University of Missouri. And uh, I asked him, uh, what, would, what, what would happen if you know, President Obama did issue the executive order that I called for, in, in the last chapter of my book, how quickly really could these foods come off the market? And he stated that uh, it would be difficult to get them all out of the food supply within one year, but within two years they could be essentially pretty much over. I mean, not to get all of the residue out of the food supply and all of that, that could be a while, all the crops are out there. But to actually stop new ones from coming onto the market and to have enough conventional to fill conventional seeds to uh, non-GMO seeds to basically have availability for planting. He thought within two years it was not unrealistic to say that we could pretty much have them out of the food, the new supply line. Well, that's pretty fast. And uh, yes, it it would be tremendous dislodgements, discomfort for many big corporations for the agricultural sector. But we have to do it at some point. These foods, yeah, it, it, it seems know, to me, and I don't mean have to come off the market. So better sooner than later, right? It, it seems to me, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. That the longer it takes for us to 
pull them off the market. The longer it takes to enforce the law uh, and see an end to this, or at least see that the, you know something happens, the longer that takes, the less likely we are to have uh, the seeds that are necessary because GMO seeds are pretty well dominating the market today, even it's for the home gardener. Go ahead, sir. No, it's a good point. You made a very good point. The longer we wait, the more difficult it will become. And in fact, the proponents have have known that, and they've. Uh, that's why they, there was such a rush to get these foods out, to get them to permeate the market. And then uh, I have heard the argument several times, as have uh, you know many people. Well, you know the horse has already left the barn; it's too late, and you can't do anything now anyway. It's almost like, ha, 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 we fooled you and we win. Nope, nope, not that easy. They did fool most people, but they're not going to get away with it. Truth ultimately triumphs, and it's much better to face the facts now and do roll up our sleeves and do what we need to do, which is to get these untested and unacceptably risky foods off the market. And some people would say, well, they may be untested according to the FDA's arguments, but they're tested because of what the European Union requires or what Canada requires. Those tests have been, by and large, very lax. My book demonstrates that. Uh, again, and that's just not me saying it. It's it's good scientists who, right. who know what needs to be done saying it. There are hundreds and hundreds of well-credentialed scientists around the world that uh, regard genetically engineered foods as entailing higher risk and regard the test as being highly substandard. And it's not a situation that should have been allowed to develop. And if sound science had been followed, it wouldn't have happened. And what we have to understand is these foods have been inadequately tested. They do entail risks. There are inherent risks in the genetic engineering process that have been not uh, adequately addressed and confronted and acknowledged, and it's time that we did before we go down this road any further. Yeah, and the and the road is advancing. By the way, uh, we both mentioned Jane Goodall. I want our audience to know that this is what she says about you. Stephen Drucker, Drucker, I'm sorry, sir, is a hero. He deserves at least a Nobel Prize. But now let me ask you something about the whole politic of this. We have the new TPP treaty, and you've got to be familiar with that because it forces nations to accept GMOs who otherwise may have outlawed those. Is, is this the mechanism you expect to see that will, for all intent and purposes, force the world into GMOs if nothing's well, that, done? That's one of the ways. The, the, as you probably know, too, and many of your uh, your listeners know, the U.S. has for a long time been trying to bash down any trade restrictions, international restrictions to GMOs to foster the U.S. biotechnology industry. And we've been bullying many nations for a long time. I mean, and this was happening during the Clinton administration, too. Tremendous pressure being put on foreign nations. Um, uh, During the George W. Bush administration, a lawsuit was brought against the European Union by the United States through the World Trade Organization, uh, again, trying arguing that there was an unreasonable, whatever meager uh, regulations that the EU did have on GMOs was an unreasonable, unscientific restraint on trade, which was so, <laughs> so ironic because the EU's re- regulations were actually much weaker than the uh, United States laws that should be enforced. If the U.S. laws actually were enforced, we would find a much stricter uh, stricter uh, regulatory regime here in the U.S. So it's quite ironic. The FDA, the, I'm sorry, the U.S. was arguing against laws that are actually looser than the laws on its own books, but they're not being enforced. So that's how bad it gets. It's really like the theater of the absurd. Uh, and the U.S. will try through trade agreements or whatever to break down uh, barriers to GMOs so that uh, the world has to take them, nations have to take them, regardless of whether their people and their governments want them. And again, that's why it's so important for the facts to be known and people to stand up and fight for science and fight for the facts and expose those scientists who have actually sullied their own reputations and degraded science by the way they've been putting out 
false statements in behalf of genetically engineered food. My book documents case after case, shocking cases, in which eminent scientists and scientific in institutions have actually misrepresented the facts, gone out of their way to deceive uh, legislators and the media and the public. And it is so unsavory, and it, it needs to be exposed, and it needs to be stopped. Amen. Amen. Okay, now let's let's do this. Let's in the remaining minutes, let's take on the other side of this. You know, the GMO proponents are going to say, hey, hold it just a minute. If this stuff is so dangerous, why hasn't it harmed anyone? Oh, and it has, of course. The, pro the, the very first ingestible product of recombinant DNA technology, which is the technical term for what is commonly termed genetic engineering, the right. very first ingestible product of that technology didn't just harm someone. It killed dozens of Americans, seriously sickened between four and 5,000 others, according to the Center for De Disease Control's latest estimate. And that occurred back in 1989 and 1990, a major epidemic caused by the first ingestible product of genetic engineering, which was a food supplement of the essential amino acid L-tryptophan. And many people hearing, most people probably don't even know that, but those that do have probably heard that, oh, genetic engineering didn't cause that. Actually, genetic engineering has, the technology has never been absolved of the, of being the, playing the key causal role. And in fact, as my book demonstrates, if one looks at the evidence as a whole and separates the actual facts from the, from the propaganda, then one sees that the evidence as a whole, the best evidence that we have right now as a whole, strongly points toward the genetic engineering as the key factor in causing that unusual toxic contamination that killed dozens of people and seriously sickened thousands more. So uh, then people will argue, well, since genetically engineered crops have come out, they're we have no record of any other problems, and people have been eating these for, you know, close to 20 years now in the U.S. and Canada, and, uh, and nobody's dropped dead from them. They have no way of knowing that. That's an unscientific statement. The same kind of claim could have been made about tobacco in 1960, even in 1962. In fact, the claim would have been stronger for tobacco. People have been smoking it longer. More people have been smoking it and using it for longer. We don't have any evidence that tobacco is causing problems. And even as of 1962, the epidemiological studies that had been conducted for several years, hadn't the evidence hadn't all been compiled yet to the level of being able to establish a causal link between smoking cigarettes and cancer. But a few years later, the link had been established. Now, the, there's a, major, uh, a few major differences. The studies were being done on tobacco. They were done. They couldn't be done on genetically engineered foods. No, to people, they're... I ask the listeners to think, do you know when the first GMO you ate was and what it was? Do you know what quantity you've been eating over the years? Of course you don't. What quantity of that one or other ones? How would we ever do epidemiological studies? And these foods aren't labeled either. And, uh, in fact... I've heard several epidemiologists state that we couldn't. It would be well-nigh impossible to try to now begin epidemiological studies of a genetically engineered food in our country anyway, or in Canada. Just you can't do it. No, you'd so, have to isolate a. You'd have to isolate an uncontaminated population somewhere with the Trinidad right, Islands or something that had never been exposed, and then run long-term studies. And, you know, if the hypothesis suggests that there may be a risk, well, then you're never going to get a human subjects committee to approve that. So That's the right. bottom line is it's so infiltrated that, no, it can't be identified. Let That's me ask it. you another. And it was by ahead, design. <laughs> that was designed that way to get it to permeate the food supply without any pre-testing or without sufficient pre-testing. And then basically so that nobody could really do follow-ups. Yeah. Okay. You know, I have so many more questions for you, but I'm looking at a clock here, and I think the most important thing right now is I want you to let everybody know how they can learn more about you, more about your organization. You must have some fundraising method by which you 
proceed on this? Uh, you know, tell us about that, because I know a lot of people in our audience would love to get in behind and champion your efforts on this. And well, you have about you. thirty. That's, yeah, go that's ahead, please. You. The the uh, the main uh, avenue for that, the organization is the nonprofit organization, the Alliance for Biointegrity. The website is www.biointegrity.org, B-I-O-integrity.org. Just recently, there was some technical problem developed, and if you look at that website now, it won't look pretty because it used to look gorgeous. There were there was beautiful graphics and nice links. It's going to be up and uh, going again in a few days, I hope. But uh, you still the the effort, the information on there is still available, including uh, 24 key memos from the FDA's files where people can read for themselves what FDA uh, scientists said. And um, there, if people want to mail uh, donations into the alliance, it's a 501c3 organization, so donations are tax-deductible. Uh, they can do that, and hopefully within about a week, we're going to have a, uh, a link for PayPal, so if people wanted to donate through PayPal, they're going to be able to. So if you don't see right. it today or tomorrow or the day after, you probably will within about seven days. And we're just out of time. The website, biointegrity.org. Write it down. Visit it. The book, Altered Genes, Twisted Truth. Stephen M. Drucker, our guest. I want to thank you, sir, for your willingness to share your work with us, for the courage it takes to do what you've done. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Here's a special thanks going out to Eric Ryder, our engineer and producer. Thanks for such a great job, Eric. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.